What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Um, We ask that question every day, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Uh, Show primarily geared towards our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, but we'll take really any apologetics question that you might have about the faith, theological uh, or otherwise. Um, If you're in conversation with one of our separated brethren, uh, we would love to hear from you today. The the toll-free phone number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-271. 2985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 2985 and you can always send us an email that email address is ctc at ewtn.com i'm jack williams sitting in once again for tom price charles beery is uh producing the program our uh, call screener is matt gubensky and Jeff Burson minding the store in the social media sphere. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every day, Dr. David Anders, how are you? Jack, I'm great. How about you? I'm terrific, thanks. So on Monday, I put out a call for a call from Belize. Yes, you did. Well, we didn't get a call from Belize, but we have an email from Belize. That is fantastic. So this is uh, Delcia, and she says, Hi, Dr. Anders. I'm Delcia from Belize. I came across your podcast. I've binged listened to every episode, and I heard the call for questions from Belize. (laughs) Wonderful. So here are two questions. One, when Jesus said, Forgive them, for they know not what they do, did everyone involved in the crucifixion get instantly forgiven, including Judas? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I appreciate it. So, uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Jesus said elsewhere that concerning Judas, it would be better for him never to have been born. Uh, and the, the, the Catholic tradition on Judas, um, let us say, does not hold out an awful lot of hope for Judas. What about the rest of them? You know, I, it's above my pay grade to know <laughs> who God forgave and who he didn't. And then her second question, since Jesus died for the sins of everyone, the very second he died, did the past sins of everyone in the world get forgiven or cleared off? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the one. This was easier to answer. So we have to make a distinction between what Jesus accomplished on the cross and the application of those benefits to the individual. Um, it's kind of like if, uh, you know, you might have a pharmaceutical company that invents the world's greatest uh, uh, medication that, that cures all ailments. 
but uh, you know instructions on the bottle say take as directed. If you don't if you don't properly assimilate the cure, you're not going to receive the benefit. And and the way we apply the benefits of Christ's death to us is through faith in the sacraments and our ongoing participation in in the life of grace. So our cooperation with the life of grace. If we don't bring our own subjective cooperation and appropriation to uh, the death of Christ, then it then it doesn't serve us. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's our toll free number. It is a free telephone call, and we've got wide open phone lines for you at eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Linda writes in, dear Doctor Anders. Good afternoon. I want to ask a question. Why do people use their cell phones during Mass? It is very distracting and inappropriate. All should be quiet and totally focused with their ears open, hands ready to receive, and hearts willing to acknowledge that God is present. I want to know what your opinion is. As always, I remain a faithful and true believer in Jesus Christ. Thank you very much. Um, from Actually, it's from Donna in Miami, Florida. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Well, I think it'd be kind of hard to generalize about why people use their cell phones during Mass. They could use them for good or bad reasons. I mean, so, for instance, I will confess, in fact, I do confess, here on the radio, I am confessing to having looked up the Mass readings on my cell phone. And, and you know, your, your missalette only gives you part of what's going on in the Mass, and so sometimes I might want to read the collect along when the priest prays the collect, or, you know, if there's a if there's a... Uh, a special preface attached to the uh, Eucharistic prayer. They may not be in your missalette, and I personally, I like to know what's going on in the text when I, when I'm at mass, and so I may look that up on my phone. And 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 I've even gone so far. I dare I dare I admit it. Dare I dare I, uh, to having done some little exegetical studies on the sly when I'm listening to the biblical readings. You know, I may hear a text and think, well, you know, I know what that text means in this English translation, but I'd like to see what the Greek text says underneath that. I might pull that up while I'm listening to the homily. Um, so uh, I, I do try not to use my phone for other purposes during Mass, but today you'll find more and more people that do just that. They pull up the Mass readings on their phone. Uh, if It'd be unfortunate if that were distracting to people around them, but I can see how that would be the case. Now, there may be people who are pulling up their Mass readings, I mean, who are pulling up their cell phones, uh, because they're trying to check the score at the game, you know, or some other illegitimate reason, and they ought not to be doing that, and it would be very distracting. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Colin in Maryland um, Erica in East Tennessee, and we've got plenty of room and a couple of open lines for your phone calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, like Belize, for instance, you can call us at 1-205-271-2976. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line. It's EWTN's call to communion with Dr. David Anders.
Brand spanking new book hot off the presses from EWTN Publishing for the month of November. Rejoicing in Our Hope, Meditations for the Advent and Christmas Seasons by Bishop Emeritus of the Bishop uh, the Diocese of Birmingham, Bishop Robert J. Baker. He shares stories and reflections on sacred scripture, the saints, popes, and other famous individuals that provide hope and inspiration for the Advent and Christmas seasons. These brief power-packed meditations include penetrating daily questions for the reflection for reflection and action. They also offer a prayer for each day while lighting the Advent or Christmas calendar. And through Bishop Baker's inspiring words of wisdom, you will receive time-tested ways of fruitfully preparing for Advent. You'll also learn the words that have the power to lead you to Christ's mercy, a special devotion to help you overcome fear and anxiety, and much more. Rejoicing in Our Hope, Meditations for the Advent and Christmas Seasons by Bishop Robert J. Baker. Uh, Available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. One open line for you at 833-288-3986. First up today is Colin in the great state of Maryland listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Colin, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Thank you, Dr. Anders. Uh, I converted to the Catholic Church 27 years ago, but one of the stumbling blocks for me was the New American Bible, the Catholic translation. It's just seemed so inelegant compared to the New International Version that I had read extensively. And I've heard you comment with skepticism about the NIV, and I'm just wondering what you would say. Yeah, thank you. I I agree with you that the language, the prose style of the NIV is considerably more elegant than the NAB, and it's a it's it's a pleasure to read the language. I would agree with you in that judgment. My my difficulty with the NIV is that it is a very theologically tendentious translation, and many of the of the translators, many of those on the translation committee, were card carrying Calvinists. Uh, some of them professors at my former university and and seminary, uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And let me tell you something: this was an anti-Catholic bunch, if there ever was one. And the Calvinism uh, absolutely influences their translation. So a, a, a leading biblical scholar like N.T. Wright, who's no Catholic and no friend of Catholics, uh, has remarked that he regards the NIV translation as appalling and has gone so far as to say that someone who relied only on the NIV would absolutely be incapable of understanding the message of the Book of Romans. Uh, because obviously uh, Wright thinks that the Calvinistic understanding of Romans is incorrect, that they misconstrue the meaning of the apostle, and that they that they torture their translation accordingly to make it conform to the Calvinist understanding of redemption. So uh, there, there are many of examples of this in the text, and there's you know plenty of websites devoted to cataloging the the, the, the errors in the NIV. I'm sure you could look them up. So I agree with you about the ease of use. It's very easy to read. And look, I will sometimes read an NIV translation. If I find a particular text that I don't think is problematic, I'll cite it because <clears throat> it is written well. Uh, but as a whole, I think it's a very theologically inaccurate and, uh, and, for that matter, dangerous translation. Thanks, Colin. We appreciate the call today. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Erica is a first-time caller in East Tennessee, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Erica, you're on with Dr. David Anders. 
Well, hi, Dr. David Anders. I am in RCIA, and recently our priest was telling us, we were talking about Holy Communion, and um, he was telling us how we are present with Christ at the crucifixion when we take Holy Communion, and I, I really don't understand that. Could you explain that? Absolutely. Thank you so much. So the way your priest uh, uh, worded this is very common, and you will hear that often in modern Catholic catechetics. I think it is very misleading. Uh, I think it is borderline incorrect. What the Church teaches about the nature of Christ's presence in the Eucharist is that Christ is truly present in the Blessed Sacrament. Body, blood, soul, and divinity are really there in, in the altar when the priest has consecrated the Eucharist. Um, but there is no dogmatic teaching of the Catholic Church that says that when you receive Christ in Holy Communion, that you somehow have uh, mystically been translated in time, that the Eucharist is somehow time travel back to Calvary. That is false. And, and in fact, it obscures, that teaching obscures the unique propitiatory character of the Eucharist as a rite, R-I-T-E, a distinct act of sacrifice that is numerically distinct from Calvary, right? So, uh, you know, when your priest says Mass on Monday, he says Mass with a particular intention. I'm saying this Mass, you know, for Joanne's grandmother, and then on Tuesday, he says a different Mass with a different intention. I'm saying this one for, you know, Ralph's uh, second cousin, once removed. Those are distinct acts of sacrifice. And it's, it, there, is a, there is a connection between Calvary and the Mass, and the Council of Trent is very clear about the connection. It says that the same victim who died on Calvary, so he's there on Calvary in a bloody manner, is present in the Mass, but in an unbloody manner. So there's a different mode of presence. Um, then uh, uh, the same priest is present. The priest that was present on Calvary is present in the Mass. Uh, that's Jesus, who offered himself on Calvary and offers himself again in the Mass uh, through the ministrations of the, of the uh, ministerial priest. But again, the mode is different, uh, and uh, it's the same intent. So what Christ did on the cross in Calvary was to reconcile man to God. He does the same thing in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. So there's continuity, same priest, same victim, same intent. But the mode of the offering, and that includes the temporal mode of the offering, is different. Now, if, if you need more to really substantiate how Christ is present in the Blessed Sacrament, temporally, when is Jesus present in the Blessed Sacrament? In what temporal mode? I think there's no clearer place than a passage in St. Thomas Aquinas, in the Summa Theologica, where he asks this question, this hypothetical question. He says, if the apostles, if, 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 if the apostles had celebrated Mass when Christ was in the tomb, they did not, of course, but they could have, if they had celebrated Mass when Christ was in the tomb, what would have been present in the Blessed Sacrament? And his answer to this question is so clear, and it clarifies the mode of Christ's presence so precisely, I think it's worth citing. He says, if the apostles had celebrated Mass when Christ was in the tomb, what you would have had in the Blessed Sacrament is Jesus' body, blood, and divinity, but not his human soul. Because at that moment, the human soul of Christ had descended to the dead, was separated from the body. Now, what that shows us is that in the mind of the common doctor of the Catholic faith, the Christ who is present in the Blessed Sacrament is Christ as he is presently situated in his proper person. 
And so right now, today, that's Christ at the right hand of the Father in glory, not Christ on the cross at Calvary. Similarly, when Christ said the Mass on Holy Thursday, before his crucifixion, what was present in the Blessed Sacrament? It was not Jesus from the next day. It wasn't jumping forward in time and grabbing Christ off the cross and putting him in the Blessed Sacrament. St. Augustine says that Christ held himself in his own hands. And the Christ that the apostles received on Holy Thursday was the very same Christ who was seated with them there at table. And so this idea that through Holy Communion we are somehow mystically translated in time to Calvary misconstrues the mode of Christ's presence in the Blessed Sacrament. And the reason it matters, in my judgment, is because that teaching obscures the, the teaching that, that you somehow mystically time travel, obscures the, the unique propitiatory character of each individual Mass. And that's something that the Council of Trent underscored and emphasized, that the Mass itself is a true and proper sacrifice. It's different from Calvary. It's a true and proper sacrifice. We head next to the Pacific Northwest. Gregory is a first-time caller in the great state of Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Gregory, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Uh, hello. Can you hear me, uh, Dr. Anders? Yes. Oh, great. Good. Um, the uh, apostles and our Lord preached repentance of sin and that the kingdom of God was at hand. Correct. Also interwoven in there occasionally, one will hear to... Uh, believe in the gospel. And so my question goes to um, the concept of the gospel as far as the word itself. When what, did that first come into usage in the uh, uh, early Christian church? Sure, thank you. So the, the word gospel, evangelion in Greek, uh, is of pre-Christian origin, and it would have referred in a Hellenistic or Roman context to uh, a proclamation by a ruler, like the Roman emperor. And sometimes you can find it in that context. He, he, he would, the Roman emperor might make an announcement that he wanted his subjects to regard as good news, and it would say, you know, hear the good news of emperor so-and-so, as he announces whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, and so that's just a proclamation of good news. And all of the Gospels agree, especially the Synoptic Gospels, that the, word, the use of the word, or at least the concept, was, uh, was central to Christ's uh, presentation of his, uh, uh, of his ministry, right? So, like John the Baptist, the central doctrine of Jesus' teaching was that the kingdom of God was at hand, right? This long-awaited uh, kingdom when God would rule over the nations and vindicate his people, look, look at, which was anticipated by the prophets, that, that the time was now, the time was going to be fulfilled, and that if you wanted to be on board, if you wanted to participate in this coming kingdom of God, there, was, there were certain things you needed to do. You needed to repent of your sins and get straight with God and live right. And the message of that imminent arrival of the kingdom, Jesus regarded as good news. Hence he called it gospel or evangelion. Um, Leticia is watching in Texas on YouTube, and she says, When we say the Our Father prayer and say, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, am I correct to say that the Lord will not forgive us unless we forgive others? That's what he says. He says that explicitly. If you don't forgive others, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. Easy answer. Um, next up is John in Boston, Massachusetts, listening today on the EWTN app. John, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Uh, thank you. I um, appreciate the show. I learned so much. First time caller, I'm Catholic. I'm calling about a uh, non 
self-proclaimed non-denominational uh, interaction that I had. And um, Mr. Williams, I listened to your wife on um, Women of Grace, and Dr. Anders, thank you for teaching me. Um, it's semi-confessional. I prayed. I've been hurt by a dialogue, which I'll be very brief about. Um, I was caught off guard of a 30-year friend and, and, and someone I've confided in who um, set me up, and I had no idea to say what. I've been hurt ever since he said he was Catholic, as I say, non-denominational, and he said, you Catholics say um, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That's indoctrinization. And I was so hurt by whatever else he said, and emotionally and spiritually, that I, the hurt is, as a man, I, I normally defend, I'm normally engaging, I'm, I'm normally, uh, you know, in the, in the truth. And I have yet to go back to him, and I will. And you've provided some answers, Dr. Anders, such as, I can have him call you. <laughs> you said that within the last two or three days. And I'll take this to confession and spiritual direction. Other than asking my guiding angel to pre-prepare now for such meetings, how else would I prepare for this? I, I really feel that I did not defend God. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I appreciate the call, John, so much. Thank you very much. So I have a number of things to say here. So I, I, I take it, what, what I think I'm hearing is that you, you were offended or hurt by this comment because when he said indoctrination, you had in mind a kind of illegitimate manipulation. When we, when we use indoctrination as a pejorative term, that's generally what we mean, that somehow somebody's had the wool pulled over their eyes, they've been deceived, they've been manipulated, uh, perhaps into believing or affirming irrational things or harmful things. And and there are that's clearly the way some people regard Catholicism. They, they see it as a as a big lie, uh, as a manipulative tool, maybe used by the church or the pope to control people and to get money out of them or to coerce them through fear or something like that. And uh, and look, let's be fair. There have been catechists in the history of humanity, in the history of the Catholic Church, that have approached catechizing in this way. I mean, you will you will hear horror stories about people who were brought up in the Catholic Church and you know, the, the, the proverbial nun with the ruler who was beating on kids' hands in the Catholic school. You know, don't ask questions, just obey, that sort of thing. And we all recoil at those kinds of stories and regard them as an offense against human dignity and human freedom and human conscience. Uh, they have happened in the past. Uh, to my way of looking at it, however, that's not, that's not authentic Catholicism, and it's not true to the spirit of the Catholic faith, and it certainly wasn't my experience. So I'm a convert to Catholicism myself, no one held my feet to the fire. No one coerced me. Um, it was the, the, a free discovery that was a result of my own honest inquiry and, and trying to pursue conscience and what would it mean to be a follower of Christ and to maintain my own intellectual integrity. So far from feeling like I was being coerced irrationally into some kind of fundamentalist cult, uh, Catholicism was, for me, a path out of that kind of religion, out of a kind of coercive fundamentalism, into the bright, shining day of, uh, of the coordination of faith and reason and a, and a true uh, humanistic account of the human good that really looked for integral human flourishing, uh, you know, and, and not just pie in the sky by and by. Um, so it, it clearly didn't characterize my experience, nor, nor that of many other people. Um, if, however, by indoctrination you mean that we taught Catholic doctrine, well, then guilty is charged. <laughs> 
833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's call to communion with Dr. David Anders. Congratulations going out to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family, Pox at Bonham Radio, serving Albany, Saratoga Springs, Hudson, Esperance, and Cherry Valley, New York, celebrating their 13th anniversary as an EWTN affiliate. Uh, congratulations to Tom and Laura Threlkeld and their team at WOPG AM and FM from your friends here at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Uh, David's watching on YouTube, Dr. Anders, and he says, My problem is indulgences. I feel like we should be doing things like penance, adoration, the rosary, etc. to get closer to God primarily and not to count indulgence credits. I compare indulgences to teaching to the test in education, where teachers sometimes teach just to pass a te- just to pass a test and not for the wider educational benefit. Is it okay if I ignore indulgences in general? What are your thoughts? Yeah, thank you. So, one of the doctors of the church, Saint Francis de Sales, is famous for a book entitled "Introduction to the Devout Life," and my favorite part of that text is the very first chapter where he considers the question, what is true devotion? What do we mean when we mean true devotion? And he goes down a list of options, of, of possibilities. Is, is, a tr- is true devotion giving alms? Well, no, it's not giving alms. Is it reciting many prayers? No, it's not reciting many prayers. Uh, is, it, is it extreme fasts and asceticism? No, it's not extreme fasts and asceticism. And he, he lists many favorite Catholic practices. And this says, well, if it's not all these things, then what is true devotion? It's nothing other than the genuine love of God and neighbor. And everything in Catholic spirituality, from the top to the bottom, uh, converges on that one conclusion. So St. Augustine, of course, is famous for the saying, love and do what you will. Love and do what you will. Uh, In non-Christian doctrine, he says, look, you know, there's probably a right way and a wrong way to interpret the Bible. But as long as the end result is that you increase in charity, I'm not going to quibble with you. And he goes on to say, in one of the most amazing passages in all of Catholic literature, he says, the entire dispensation of our faith and the material world exists for one purpose, and that is to bring us to charity. St. Paul says the same thing. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels and have prophecy and can fathom all knowledge and mysteries, but I have not love, then I'm nothing. I'm like a banging gong or an empty symbol. That love is the is the end of the go end of the road for us, right? We should treat everything Augustine says like a road or a chariot, right? It's it's a means to an end, and the end that it is to convey us to is charity. Uh, Saint Teresa of Avila says the same thing in her magnificent treatise on the mystical life or interior castle, the book of my life. Um, she says uh, that humility and the will of God, that striving to bring your will into a line with the will of God, that is the whole. The, the, the soul and center of the Catholic life and Catholic spirituality. And we, there are so many different spiritualities in the plural within, within Catholicism. And what the tradition urges us to do is you have to have a spirituality, right? But spirituality is nothing other than the attempt on the practices to bring our will in alignment with the will of God 
uh, to conform our person to the person of Jesus Christ. So you find the spirituality in the church that does that the most efficaciously for you. Now, I have seen, I know people who are just tremendous devotionalists. They've got every Marian prayer memorized that you could possibly imagine. They know every feast day. They never miss a rosary, uh, you know, and, and, and for them, their path in, in life is, is to do that, like, hard all day, every day, and they come to charity through that. I have known others. Uh, my own mentor in the Catholic faith, a Dominican priest, Lambert Green, and he prayed his rosary to be sure, but, uh, um, but, but you know, he spent his time meditating on the teachings of St. Thomas Aquinas. That's what he liked to do. On his off time, so to speak, he would sit and stare out the window and pose theological dubia to himself. And then if you knew him, you know, he could actually take that and turn it into charity. He could bring that, put that at the service of other people. Um, being a Dominican, he was not a huge fan of the Jesuits and Ignatius of Loyola and the spiritual exercises, which is another great spiritual tradition in the church. I once asked Father Lambert, I said, Father Lambert, uh, did you ever read the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola? And he looked at me like I had two heads and said, nope. <laughs> what do I need that for? I've got St. Thomas, you know. <laughs> and of course, the Jesuits, you know, what do they go in for? They go in for Ignatius and the spiritual exercises, and they uh, uh, they've done the world a tremendous amount of good by introducing people to that particular spiritual tradition. So the point is, you don't you can you can follow the Carmelite path, you can follow the Dominican path, you can follow the Jesuit path, you can follow the, the devotionalists path. The important thing is pick the path that suits your temperament, personality, historical background, education level, demographic, whatever. And, uh, and follow it hard in imitation of Jesus with the end goal of growing in charity. And so uh, I remember once when I first became Catholic, I picked up Teresa of Avila and I read her and I thought, man, this is impossible. I can't do this. And I went to Father Mark, who's a priest here at EWTN, and I was in confession to him. I said, Father Mark, you know, I'm brand new Catholic and I'm reading the uh, book of my life and the interior castle by Teresa. And Man, I can't do this. This is just this is too much. I don't know if I can handle this much hardcore spirituality. Father Mark looks at me and he says, well, maybe you're not ready for Teresa of Avila. Best piece of advice I ever got. You know, fantastic understanding that there is a time and a place for everything. There may come a time in your life when you find that indulgences are your friend and you find a way to approach them. That, that doesn't have this kind of slavish, uh, you know, uh, uh, commercialized, transactional view of the, of, the, of the exercise, and you can find that they're a great benefit to you. Uh, if right now that's a stumbling block for you, well, then you don't have to do those right now. Uh, personally, I, I like indulgences, and I don't view them in that transactional way, like I'm, like I'm you know, cheating or teaching the test. I see them as an inducement, a kind of encouragement to practice spiritualities that I might otherwise neglect. Like, for example, the devotion to the holy souls and praying for the repose of the dead. It jogs my memory. If I know there's an indulgence attached to that, jogs my memory, reminds me, I need to go pray for the holy souls, right? So that's how I use it. I use the indulgence as an encouragement to take up aspects of the practice of the faith that I might otherwise neglect or, or let fall by the wayside. But if, that's, if you're not ready for that, well, we get to that next year. You know, one of the other friars once told me that they had a professor in seminary that uh, told them that they needn't pick up St. John of the Cross until they are third-year theology students. <laughs> Even that's kind of soon. <laughs> right, exactly. And that's seven years into formation. Right, sure. So. 
Um, next up is John in St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. John, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks. Uh, you guys are great. And uh, I got a probably a simple question. Um, the gist of it has to do with uh, Catholicism, Christianity, and self-defense. Uh, kind of, I'm 68, uh, lost Catholic, headed into the holidays with families and talk, and you know the news is full of trouble in the Mideast and wars and self-defense, and it goes, you know, you can trace it back for 2,000 years. And, uh, and my question is, if you know, if you look at, you know, you want to live your life like Jesus, what did he tell us? Turn the other cheek. He never fought back. His apostles all went out. They never fought back. Most of the martyrs never fought back. But at some point, it must have been okay as Christians, Catholics, for us to develop the idea of self-defense. And I always felt like if I ever got to sit down with Jesus and drink a beer or something and go, so all these religions, I mean, it seems like uh, Amish or Mennonite, these are religions that don't fight back. That's kind of what you taught, as opposed to all these religious dust-up and wars. And I mean, I, I, I kind of have a, a hard time, you know, how the world and is working versus what Jesus taught us. But at the same time, if at some point somebody didn't step up in self-defense, I'm pretty sure uh, Christianity and Catholicism would have died out pretty quick. So I'm just trying to maybe yeah, connect sure. the dots. Thanks. I really appreciate sense. the question. So so something that is implied by your question, or maybe it's a question that's implied in your question, is the relevance of the teaching of Jesus to public policy, to government policy. Is it directly relevant to government policy? And uh, there's a famous Catholic moral theologian uh, who was an expert in, in political theology, uh, the theology of public life, he contributed significantly to the Second Vatican Council, especially to the Declaration on, on Human Dignity, uh, on, on uh, the freedom of religion. His name was John Courtney Murray, very famous, wrote a magnificent book called We Hold These Truths, Reflections on the American Proposition, which I recommend to your attention. And uh, Murray tells the story of uh, being in discussion with a public figure. He was a non-Catholic person, I think a Protestant person, who asked him, what does the Sermon on the Mount teach us about public policy? And, and Murray's response was, why would you think that the Sermon on the Mount told us anything about public policy? Right? That the premise of the question is misguided. And, and Jesus's ethic is the ethic of Christian disciples, to be sure. Um, but w when you're dealing with public policy, you're dealing with a realm that Jesus just doesn't directly address at all. But St. Paul does. St. Paul does. He, he says in Romans chapter 13, for example, that it is perfectly legitimate, in, in Romans chapter 12, is perfectly legitimate for the state to bear the sword, right? And he's here talking about capital crimes and the execution of criminals and things of that sort. He's perfectly legitimate to do that um, because it's necessary for the maintenance of the public order. And, and he writes in his epistles, he encourages Christians who are trying to live this otherworldly eschatological ethic, that they pray for kings and those in authority, uh, that they could live in peaceable times and be able to practice their religion. So that, so there is a differentiation in his mind between the personal ethics of the Christian and the need for a public order that that cannot be conducted according to the principles of, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the, the, there, are, there are realms within Catholic life where it's perfectly legitimate for people to take 
the the imperatives of the Sermon on the Mount and try to live them as generously and and without compromise as possible. That's what we call religious life. So, uh, you know, when people take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and they become Franciscans or Dominicans or something of that sort, and they want to live that that self-sacrificial life of Jesus to the utmost and be a witness to the world of what true Christian discipleship looks like, they're going to do that. You're not going to find Franciscan types and Dominican types uh, taking up arms and and going into the armed forces. They're going to live, you know, rather like your Amish do, or your Mennonites, or those other groups that you mentioned. Um, But it's a particular... it's a particular witness to the eschatological character of the Christian life aimed towards eternity. Um, but we also have to live in the world. You know, we, um, Jesus said that, you know, you can't—the uh, uh, pursuit of wealth is, is, is not the end goal of human life, and yet, if you're going to bear children and, and raise them and have families, you know, you have to save for college. You have to put a roof over their head. You have to put food on the table. I mean, and these—so these, these, uh, these conditions are part of the human experience— and the Catholic Church legitimizes them and says this is a reasonable way to live in the world. So, um, uh, yes, we have Christ's example of, uh, of nonviolence and pacifism, and there is a call for that in Christian life. But you cannot extend that uh, all the way through every aspect of public policy or, or national defense. Just a little reminder to everybody to remember to fall back this weekend. Daylight Savings Time ends this Sunday morning at 3 a.m. Eastern Time. So set your clocks back an hour before you go to sleep tomorrow night and enjoy that extra hour of rest. Next up is Joy. She is in the great state of South Carolina listening on EWTN.com. Joy, you're on with Dr. David Andrews. Yes, thank you. Um I've been back in the church for the last maybe seven years, and I struggle with a lot of different issues, but never with the issue of salvation. I was ordained as an Nazarene minister, and I preach and I taught and I believe with all my heart that Jesus buried our sins and that God bore on him the punishment that was owed to us. Now, when I heard you a couple of times talking about it, your position, or probably the position of the church, is so different. And what bothers me the most is that when I am talking to somebody, because now I'm not preaching anymore, but when I'm talking to somebody, that is the way that I come across. You know, you just Jesus carried our burden. He carried our sins. And so you give them to him, you give them your sin, and you receive salvation. And, of course, repentance and all of that, but basically the idea that that he took the punishment for our sin. And that is not what you teach, and I suppose it's not what the Church teaches, but I don't know how I would ever present your sure, sure, sure. Yeah, thank you so much. So, so let me let me try to really simplify it down to the bare essentials for you. The Catholic position is that Christ came to change us, to make us different people. There was a famous saint from the second century named Irenaeus of Lyon, and he said that what we lost in Adam, we regain in Christ, namely to be in the likeness and image of God. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. They lost that. They effaced that. They marred that through sin. Christ has come to restore that likeness and image. Through the incarnation, he took on our humanity that we might share in his divinity. 
St. Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.4 that through the promises of Christ we become partakers of the divine nature. This is a beautiful teaching. It's a beautiful teaching because, see, left to my own devices, I'm a nasty piece of work. And I, I do harm to people, and I'm selfish and brutish and proud and lustful and arrogant. And, and uh, I mean, I've done untold damage to human beings and, and to myself and my own dignity. And the prospect that Christ could heal me of that, that he could actually make me into a decent human being, wise and compassionate and charitable and loving, that he would forgive my sins to be sure, but not just leave me in them. Not just forgive me and leave me a nasty piece of work, but to forgive me and then make me something better. That's the promise of the Catholic faith, that Christ came to fundamentally change the character of human life. Now, the Protestant position is different from that. Martin Luther once said, God never smiled on a man for his charity or virtues. I regard that as a terrible teaching. Absolutely atrocious, right? That, that I mean, in any other realm of human endeavor— to outside of religion, imagine someone that, 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 that behaved atrociously and said, it's perfectly okay because I regard myself as perfectly righteous. I, I'm actually a terrible human being, but because I regard myself as a decent human being, I, I, that's all that matters. And you have to regard me that way as well. Well, we would call a person like that a narcissist of the worst kind, maybe a psychopath. And yet that's the view that Luther was advocating, that, that my objective moral behavior doesn't ultimately matter before God. What matters is that I regard myself as having been forgiven and, and, and righteous in God's sight. But the Catholic faith teaches he's going to forgive your sins, but he's actually going to make you better. He's actually going to change your character. You know? and, and I don't want to be left in my sins. G.K. Chesterton once said, he was asked, why did you become Catholic? He said, to get rid of my sins. And Catholicism is the only religion that really promises to be able to do that. Now, what does the death of Christ accomplish for us? Um, if, if Christ's death existed, if Christ died on the cross because God wanted to punish him, that would have God punishing an innocent person and acquitting the guilty. Well, if a human judge did it, if a human judge punished an innocent person and let somebody else fall scot-free, we would call that guy unjust. That's not what judges are for. That's not how the, the Bible understands the death of Christ. Rather, rather, Christ died the death of a martyr. He was a righteous person who ungodly men put to death. Now, when we see that happen in normal circumstances, like let's say when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, we look at MLK and we say, how courageous of him to stand up for the source of uh, in defense of truth and justice, even though he knew it might cost him his life. And we honor him for that. We honor him for that sacrifice. Or a soldier that falls in battle, he's willing to give his life to preserve his country and the people that he loves. We regard that sacrifice as noble and honorable. We don't want to pour out our wrath on those people. We want to honor them. In the same way, Christ, who was love itself, who gave his life in defense of the truth, in the honor of God, and for the love of his brethren— and died at the hands of unjust men, we regard that death of martyrdom as meritorious, as valuable, as, as praiseworthy, and so does God regard it that way. Rather than hating Jesus and punishing him, God regarded the death of Christ as something beautiful and, and praiseworthy, and so he poured out a reward upon Christ and his body, the Church, namely the gift of grace and the Holy Spirit. And so we have the death of Christ for our sins. We have forgiveness of sins in his name. 
But the way it works is different from in Protestantism. We have a loving God in loving union with the Son who's rewarding him for an act of love. Whereas Martin Luther and John Calvin and the Protestants have a wrathful God hating his innocent child and punishing him for something he did not do. We both believe in the death of Christ. We both believe in grace. We both believe in forgiveness. But we believe they work differently and that it makes a difference in our lives. The idea that I could really be saved of my sins in Catholicism or the idea that God might leave me in a state of sin and, yes, just regard me as righteous for Christ's sake within Protestantism. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next up is Vivian, a first-time caller in the great state of Ohio. And she is listening on St. Gabriel Radio today. Vivian, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hi, thank you for um, taking my call. Um, before I ask you something, I, I'm a Protestant, and I believe 100% that God loves us all. And uh, he's there to forgive us, and he loves us tremendously. So I believe that 100%. Um, even though I'm outside the abortion hill, I tell these moms to go in and that God loves them, and he wants them to come to him. But um, And I'm sad in the times when I see other people disrespect other religions. And I know by my Catholic friends and other religions, they love the Lord. So I just wanted to make that statement. But what I was calling that was, I was interested in that. Um, now, purgatory, do you have to leave that you every, all go to purgatory, or is there any that can go straight to heaven? Oh, yeah. Thanks, heaven? Vivian. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the call. Oh, you can absolutely go straight to heaven in Catholicism, 100%. That's what we call the saints. Absolutely. So, of course, you know, Jesus himself, after he rose from the dead, went ascended to heaven. He didn't have to go to purgatory. Jesus didn't, of course. Blessed Virgin Mary didn't go to purgatory. None of the saints went to purgatory. Uh, and, uh, and you, too, can go straight to heaven if you die in the love of God without any attachment to sin, and you've been purified of all attachment to sin, then whoosh, off you go in the fast lane, straight to heaven without purgatory. <laughs> if the Catholic Church learns about it, they might call you a canonized saint. Right, but uh, but for for those of us who who die with attachment to sin and and we haven't done penance for our sin, then then uh, then purgatory is the antechamber for heaven. That's where we get to wipe our feet before we go in the door. Seth is a first time caller in the great state of Ohio, also listening on Saint Gabriel Radio. Seth, you're on with Doctor Anders. Thank you, Mister Anders. I'd like to ask you a question, and I'd like a simple yes or no. You you agree to it? And I'd like to ask you, have you been born again? Thank you. I'm going to answer the question, yes, but I have a feeling that you and I mean something different by the term. You want to tell me what you mean by born again? Uh, yeah, I'd like to ask you to give a testimony about when you was born again, how it felt and what happened. Well, okay, so again, I was born again. I imagine that you and I don't mean the same thing by the term. What do you mean by the word born again? Tell me, you said you was born again. Tell me about the. All right, you're not going to play along with me. That's fine. All right, fine. So let me let me let me cover. I'll have, I'll, I'll cover it from both ways. Okay, uh, biblically, Jesus Christ says that a man has to be born again by water and the Spirit. This is John chapter three, 
and St. Peter, who says that we are born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, in chapter 3 of his epistle, explains that that takes place through the waters of baptism. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3 that baptism now saves us. St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 that we die with Christ in baptism and are raised again with him to new life. So the born again that Scripture talks about is very clearly described in connection with the sacrament of baptism. So I was baptized as a Presbyterian child in about—I think I was about three years old when I was baptized. My parents kind of fudged a little bit on infant baptism uh, in a Presbyterian church here in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, And according to the teaching of the Catholic faith, I was born again at the moment of my Trinitarian baptism at Briarwood Presbyterian Church— in Birmingham, Alabama, in in or around about 1973. Now, the church I attended was also an evangelical church that taught people needed to receive Jesus into their heart and pray to be forgiven from their sins and to commit their lives to him. That's what many Protestants mean by being born again. All right? So I did that one, too. (laughs) I did that one, too. Uh, And that's probably what you're asking about. Uh, But from a Catholic point of view, it was the first one that counted. It was the baptism that counted. And that subsequent act of inviting Jesus into my heart and, and uh, uh, to be my Lord and Savior uh, was, uh, was nice, but it wasn't the essentials of being born again. Leslie, watching on YouTube, wants to know, what does it mean to pray well? Yeah, that's a great question. Praying well means praying in such a fashion that we bring our will into conformity with the will of God. That's what Teresa of Avila says is the essence of, of good prayer bringing our will into conformity with the will of God. So the prayer of the Blessed Virgin Mary is really ideal here. Be it done to me according to thy word. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our producer, Charles Beery, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams, once again sitting in today for Tom Price, thanking you for another great week of EWTN's Call to Communion. If you know of someone who is outside of the Catholic faith that has questions that might be troubling you a little bit or you have a hard time answering, give us a call Monday through Friday uh, right here at 1 o'clock Eastern Time, and we'd be happy to check that, 2 o'clock Eastern Time, and uh, we'd be happy to try to answer those. Or if you're listening and you are a non-Catholic and there's just that one little thing that's a hang-up for you, give us a call on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. God bless.